Thank you so much for that. Genesis chapter number four this morning. Genesis chapter number four. I am glad that no one person needs to be smart enough to organize a service, make everything just match up, and we can just leave it into the hands of God because He knows what is needed before we even know. And that has been already very evident this morning and as I am thinking and uh, my mind consumed with what we're going to be talking about over the next few minutes, it has only been a confirmation of what the Lord has for us this morning from the Word of God uh, based off of what God has already directed in the song. That song was exceptionally timely. Thank you for that trio. Let's stand together this morning at Genesis chapter number 4. A couple of weeks ago, we took the college young people to Dallas, Mesquite area, and just to help out in what was supposed to be a tent revival and ended up being inside the church. But it was a revival nonetheless, and uh, we had a chance to go up there and uh, do some witnessing. And we went out one afternoon, and we're knocking some doors, and we ran into some young teenage men, and we were talking to them. And after we had talked to them for probably 35, 40 minutes, one of the boys looked at me, about 15 years old, and he asked me a very simple question. And a question that God has not left me alone with, and I know why now it's been something that he has uh, led me to start and preach on this morning. And the question was simply this, what is sin? Amen. He honestly had no idea. He asked me simply, what is sin? And as I started to give him an answer, and yes, it was an answer, and it was a biblical one, and I got to thinking about it. I said, man, that answer seems a little bit shallow as I got to think about it later. So I started getting in the Word of God and studying it out a little bit. What does the Bible say about sin? What is sin? Not what are sins, although we'll talk about that, but what is sin? What makes something a sin? We pick up in Genesis chapter number 4. This is the very first time that the word sin is mentioned in the Word of God. Genesis chapter number 4, verse number 3 will begin. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And here's the phrase we want to look at this morning. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. If thou doest excuse me, not well, Sin lieth at the door. Let's pray as we come this morning. Jeff Porter, if you would pray for us, please. He may, may be seated. Susanna Wesley, the mother of Jonathan Wesley, said this about sin when teaching her boys. She said this, Whatever weakens your reasoning impairs the tenderness of your conscience 
obscures your sense of God or takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, if anything increases the authority and power of the flesh over the spirit, that to you becomes sin, no matter how good it is in and of itself. Her message to her boys was simply, sin is anything that gives the flesh power over the spirit. A.W. Tozer said this, a man by his sin may waste himself, which is to waste that which on earth is most like God. This is man's greatest tragedy and God's heaviest grief. Another man said, sin is man trying to live outside the parameter set by God. What is sin? In this passage of Cain, we see that there was a sin committed. We see that Cain and Abel were supposed to come and offer unto God a sacrifice. And without getting into the history of the entire passage, we know that the offering, acceptable offering that was to be brought forth was that of a spotless lamb. Was that of a lamb without blemish. And we know that Abel brought of that lamb and God said that he was pleased and accepted that offering. Cain, on the other side, brought of his own works. He brought of the tilling of the ground. He brought of the fruits and the vegetables of the ground of which he had personally wrought. And he brought a sacrifice that God called unacceptable. And God said that there was no respect shown unto Cain for his offering. None. And that made Cain angry. And when Cain became angry, we see God addressing Cain in this anger and says, why art thou angered? Why are you upset? He said, and he simply asks him two questions. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? But then he goes on and said, if thou doest not well, and the key phrase, sin lieth at the door. The more I looked at that passage and the more I thought and meditated upon that phrase, sin lieth at the door. There were many things that became very apparent about sin and its revelation to Cain through Jesus Christ or God at this moment. The first thing we see about sin lying at the door, anytime a person chooses to come to God any other way than the way that God has chosen, sin will soon follow. And I don't know about you, I, we can look at many passages, you know, it's amazing uh, when we go to work, wherever we go to work, the boss tells us a specific place or a specific way to do that particular job, whatever job that might be. And if we do it exactly the way he says, most of the time, a good boss is pleased. But if we do not, and we choose to do it our own way, and we think, you know, this might actually be a better way, and we go about to do it our own way, and, and it's not the way that we were instructed, it's not the way we were taught and trained, uh, nobody in their right mind expects their boss to be happy or respect the way that we have done that if it is wrong. Nobody expects that. But yet isn't it amazing that God in his book has laid out certain ways that man ought to live and said that there is a specific way that you must come to God. And he says in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. 
No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And God, the God of all the universe, the God of creation, the God of everything that we can behold, uh, says this is the way that I want it done. And man thinks that we can come about it any way we want. And then when God shows no respect to the way we have come to him, we say, what is wrong with this God? We have an inconsistency with how we view mankind and how we put God on a level. God says this is the way to do it. If you don't do it this way, why should I respect your way? I'm God. I know the right way. You haven't done the right way. And that's the position that Cain finds himself. James chapter 4 gives us a very specific definition of sin. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is what? Sin. sin. So we also know that sin is... Um, something that is known to do good and we do it not that is sin I think this, this morning it is very important for us to understand the hellishness of sin I think we lose sight often of its horror of its danger of the real impact that sin has on our lives on the lives of those around us and most importantly God Sin is the cancer that slowly kills the life, draining its strength, destroying its supply, and derailing its best intentions. Sin is the poison that putrefies the heart, plagues the mind, and turns to pus the will's attempt to heal the broken heart. Sin produces the vomit from a drunken stupor. It pushes the teenage mother to sacrifice her child. It punishes the innocent child with an abusive parent. Sin creates pain from pleasure, disease out of delight, heartache from happiness, and offers death to all. What is sin? Sin is simply rebellion against God. God says, this is the way you're supposed to do it. And man stands there and says, no, this is the way I'm going to do it. Humanism is simply man claiming that his way is better than God's way. If you want to put it in its simplest form, it's man saying, I know God has laid out a law, but I don't see how that is actually the best way to go. I think I can figure out a better way to do this. That's humanism. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 says, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Sin is man's rebellion against God's power. Sin is man's rebellion against God's holiness. Sin is, God's, is man's rebellion against God's goodness, against God's justice, against God's truth, against every characteristic that God maintains. Our sin is an attack and an assault on the very character of God. There's nothing pleasing about a sinner. You say, well, I'm a religious person. May I tell you, your sin causes a stench to rise into the nostrils of our God. You say, well, I'm a baptized sinner. I have news for you this morning. Water cannot wash away the filth of your sin that plagues your life on a daily basis. It's amazing what Isaiah 
through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had to say about sin. He says this, All sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, they have forsaken the Lord. And listen to God's description of sin. He says, From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. If you want to really understand God's viewpoint of a sinner, that's God's viewpoint of the sinner. I don't know about you, but oftentimes you go into a foreign country. We don't get to see it here in America very often. Uh, America's really good at covering up death dying and decay uh, but you go to these foreign countries where they don't have the medicine or the things available on many occasion I have had the chance to behold people in hospitals in foreign countries and you see the rot and the decay uh, and the sores that are open and unattended to and the pus that is flowing down somebody's face and nobody's attending to it. And we look at that and we cringe and it sets our stomach on edge. And might I tell you this morning, that's us. When God looks at us in our sinful state, he sees putrefying sores. He sees a decaying life. And then we sit there and say, I'm really not that bad. If God in Isaiah chapter 64 says that our righteousness in his eyes is filthy rags that they would take and wipe those pus sores, imagine what our sin looks like in the eyes of a holy God. Homosexuality is rebellion against God's divine order. It's not a disease. It's not a birth defect. It is direct rebellion against God's divine order. God tells us in Genesis, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. From the beginning, God designed an order. That order is one man and a woman. And man today in this world has stood up and said homosexuality is nothing more than a preference. It's nothing more than just a choice. And I'm telling you, according to God's divine order, man is in rebellion. Disobedience is rebellion against God's divine wisdom. God says, this is the law, walk ye in it. And man sits there and says, I know better than God. I can find a better way. That way is too strict. That way is too confining. That way is too difficult. That way is not easy. And God's sitting there and saying, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. But because we claim in the mind of a humanistic mentality that my way is better than God's ways, we rebel against God's divine wisdom in saying I can choose a better way. Dressing without any regard for biblical principle is rebellion against God's holiness. It's not a preference. It's not a choice. It's rebellion against God's holiness. It's amazing to me we can take those very things about God that we treasure the most, the fact that He's perfect, the fact that He's holy, 
And we can stomp on that very characteristic and choose that it's my preference to look the way I want to look. It's my preference to dress the way I want to dress. May I tell you, that's not just simply a preference. It's not simply a choice. It's rebellion against God's holiness. First Peter chapter 1, it says, Be ye holy as I am holy. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 4, one of my favorite verses, we may get to later, it says that he has made us to become partakers of the divine nature. We want to be a part of that divine nature, but we and we, we treasure the fact that we say we can stand before God holy, but it's amazing to me that it doesn't transcend over to any change in how we look. Man lives in rebellion. Lust is a rebellion against God's goodness. You say, God's goodness? God knows exactly what a person needs to be happy and pleased. And when we take things into our own minds and we lust over things uh, that God says you have no business lusting over it, we are stomping on God's divine goodness saying, God, you really don't know what's good for me. Lust isn't just a straying of the eyes. Lust just isn't something that we can do and say there's no consequence. Lust is an act from within that is saying, God, if you knew what was good for me, that would be mine too. It's a trampling and a rebellion against God's goodness. Failure to tithe is rebellion against God's divine providence. It's not just something we choose to do. It's rebellion. He tells us in Malachi chapter 3, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house. I heard somebody say the other day, one of the reasons why we have nothing going on inside the house of God is because there's no sustenance because nobody tithes. He said, how in the world can God give meat? Can God give blessing? Can God give pleasure upon the house of God if we're not doing our part first? That's not the message. That's just what I heard somebody else say. But he says at the end of that verse, he promises, he says, try me now, sir, with, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. And when we refuse and we hold on to that and we say, no, this 10% is mine, God, we are saying, God, I am in direct rebellion against your divine providence for me. I choose to provide for myself. I can do a better job providing for me than you can. We choose to live with 90% and a curse rather than uh, with 100% and a curse than rather with 90% and a blessing. It's not something we can choose. Uh, it's rebellion. That's sin. The church of Laodicea in Revelations chapter 3 verse 17, God was accusing them and he says, Thou sayest I am rich. And increase with goods and have need of nothing. He's saying you have, you are standing there saying you need nothing. He said, but your condition is this. And I'm afraid today this is our condition oftentimes. He says, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind. I'm afraid oftentimes we gloss over the horror that sin creates in our lives and the awfulness it is in the sight of God. 
Alcohol and drunkenness is rebellion against God's divine truth and wisdom. Isaiah chapter number 28, if you would go there, Isaiah chapter number 28. It's amazing to me, 50, 60 years ago that was preaching against alcohol. Now it's simply somebody who has a problem, a disease. It's not a problem. It's not a disease. It's rebellion against God's divine truth and wisdom. It's amazing to me how we see in Scripture a correlation between uh, foolishness and alcohol. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby, what? Is not wise. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Wherefore, be ye not unwise. What's the first phrase in the very next word, verse? And be not drunk with wine. Wherein is excess. He says, be not unwise, so be not drunk with wine. God has a correlation in the word of God. A person that is uh, uh, accepting to strong drink and wine is a person that is accepting to foolishness. Isaiah chapter 28, verse number 7. This is what the Bible says. But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They're swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way. Through strong drink. Listen to these last couple of phrases. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. A person that gives themselves over to wine and strong drink will have absolutely not an ounce of discernment when it comes to the word of God. A person that is given over to alcohol and drunkenness shows that they have no discernment, no allowing of what is right. Now, what is wrong? They are in rebellion against God's wisdom. Anger and bitterness is rebellion against God's divine justice. Wasn't that Cain's problem? He says, God, wait a minute. He was angered because God was not pleased. He was upset with God's divine justice. That's why we get anger. That's why we get angry in our lives. That's why we get bitter. Because we say, God, how can you let this happen to me? How could this person do this to me? God, how can this be something that you would allow into my life? And we get angry and bitter towards that. You are in rebellion against God's divine justice. Not just having a problem. It's called sin. It's rebellion. Lying is rebellion against God's omniscience. And I'm not talking about lying to a friend. I'm talking about lying to God. Wasn't that what Ananias and Sapphira were accused of in Acts chapter number 5? When he said, what did, what, what did Paul say that they, they had lied to? They had, or Peter told them they had lied to who? The Holy Ghost. I wonder how many of us sit in our pews and live in a constant state of lying to the very God of the universe. Our pastor preaches across this pulpit about this or that, and we sit there and lie to the Holy Spirit's face when he convicts us, telling, and we excuse away to the Holy Spirit, to God himself, we say, I don't have that problem. It's rebellion against God's omniscience. When God sees all, everything we do is open Unto him with whom we have to do. And we sit there and lie and try to convince God himself that we have not a problem. I'm telling you this morning, sin is rebellion against God and his characteristics. 
what do we see as a few characteristics of sin? I see, first of all, sin has an insatiable appetite. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, If thou doest not will, sin lieth at the door. What's the connotation of that? It's saying, once you come to God however you want, there is no amount of abomination. There's no amount of temptation. There's no degree of sin that you will not succumb to. It's God telling Cain, stop now before it's too late. God was accusing uh, Cain of anger. But when Cain did not deal with that anger, what followed soon after? Murder. It is any wonder that in Matthew chapter number 5, uh, God tells us that you say thou shalt not murder, but I say unto you thou shalt not be angry against a brother without a cause. Why does God say that? Because God knows uh, that an angered heart will lead to murder. Sin has an insatiable appetite. It cannot, it will not ever be satisfied. Look at Leviticus chapter number 18 uh, Leviticus chapter number 18 and dealing with the aspect of sin we could spend all day in Leviticus but for the sake of those that are already struggling to stay awake we will not do so. Leviticus trying to read through Leviticus unless you have at least a couple cups of coffee under your belt can be difficult at best. Thankfully I have a couple cups under my belt I shouldn't fall asleep. Leviticus chapter number 18, verse number 30, the Bible says, Therefore shall ye keep mine ordinance. And then he gives us the why. Why keep God's ordinance? That ye commit not any one of these abominable customs which were committed before you. What's God's admonition to the children of Israel? He says, keep my ordinance so that you do not commit these abominations. Now, without looking in the passage, you can read the chapter later. I'm going to give you a brief overview. It starts at the beginning of saying, don't look at the nakedness of a mother. Don't look at the nakedness of a brother. Don't look at the nakedness of a, of a, of a, of a father. Don't look at the nakedness. And it's talking about don't look at this person. Don't look at that person. And it's dealing with the aspect of nakedness in the first part. But as you read on, it progresses. It starts with don't look at the nakedness and then it says don't lie with and it talks about incest and it talks about sexual sins. It says do not fornicate, do not commit adultery and it goes on but it doesn't stop there. It continues to go on and it ends in that chapter before we get to that. It's talking about bestiality and offering your born children into the fire for a satanic God. You tell me that a simple look is not going to send you down a road of deeper and darker sin. You tell me that a simple raising of the garments or a lowering of the garments is going to be acceptable because really it's a small thing. God says, no, it starts with nakedness. And where does it end up? It ends up in offering your child to a... I cannot even imagine that. And we sit and we look at all the amazing stories and you could read and I'm not going to go through the gory details. You can look at the newspaper. You can look anywhere you want of horrendous things people do to their own children. Driving their children into the ocean to try to drown them. First of all, the foolishness of that. 
and the idea that you would even comprehend such a thing. And we look at that and we go, how could a person ever get to that place? Uh, and God's simply saying, if you do not keep my ordinances, uh, then all the abominations in the land uh, you will soon be doing. Sin has an insatiable appetite. It always progresses. It also has... Sin is an enslaving addiction. John chapter 8 verse 34, Jesus said unto his disciples, Verily, verily I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter number 6. Romans chapter number 6. We'll skip around and read just a few verses. You could read the entire book. First eight chapters of Romans give us a great understanding of sin. I'm telling you this morning, sin is an enslaving addiction. Tell the smoker to stop smoking. Just stop. It's going to hurt you. One out of every three people that ever pick up a cigarette to smoke it die of lung cancer. You can tell them all you want. They're not going to stop. Tell the drunk that's your last beer. Don't drink anymore. It's ruining your life. It's not going to happen. Tell the drug addict, quit shooting up. Quit smoking your brains out. They're not going to stop. Why? Sin is an enslaving addiction. And we look at those extreme examples and go, yeah, I can't believe they're doing that. But in our own lives, in our own conditions, we allow certain things to take place saying, well, I'm not doing this and this will never lead to that. And I'm telling you right now, it will progress and it will addict your life and enslave you. Romans chapter number six, verse number 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Verse 16, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants. Ye are to whom ye obey. Verse 17, but God be thanked that ye were, what? The servants of sin. Verse 20, for when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. Verse 21, what fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is what? Death. Not only is sin an insatiable appetite and enslaving addiction, um, but it is something that no matter how difficult and how hard, you know, the David, the great psalmist David, the man after God's own heart, Psalms chapter 119, the longest chapter in all the Bible, has 176 verses. I one time challenged the college young people to memorize the entire chapter of Psalms 119. I think we made it to about verse 40. That's a long chapter. But if you read that chapter every, the first 175 verses, David says some semblance of, I delight in thy law. He lifts up the law of God 175 times. Every single verse is about the word of God 
and the value of the word of God. How I love thy law. How I delight in thy precepts. How I lift up thy statutes. How I follow after your commandments. But what does verse 176 say? He says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. David is saying, I love your law. I desire your law. I want your law. I go astray like a lost sheep. Sin is an enslaving addiction. Sin has an everlasting effect. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 5 verse 12, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. The very first command in Genesis chapter number 2, when he's talking to Adam and Eve, he says, For in the day that thou eatest thereof, what? Thou shalt surely die. James chapter 1 verse 15 says, Sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. Sin has an everlasting effect. Did you realize that in the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word, now I don't even know what it is, don't look it up, doesn't really matter. But the Hebrew word for sin is the exact same Hebrew word for punishment. They're only translated different because of context. How often we claim to be the exception to the rule that sin leadeth to death. But the Bible says, no, they're the same thing. Sin, punishment, same thing. There is no difference. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 23. We know this verse, but I want you to look at this verse. I want your eyes to behold this verse because this is an amazing verse in the context of what we're talking about here this morning the result of sin is death. Death to relationships. Death to dreams. Death to ambition. Death to a life of happiness. Death to joy, to peace, to love, to anything that you claim to hold dear in your life. Sin is the death of that thing you hold dear. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 23. But if ye will not do so, behold, ye have sinned against the Lord. And here's the verse that we hear when we're kids. Be sure you're what? Sin will what? find you out. You know, I'm not saying that this isn't the only way to, to interpret this passage, but if you read the context of the passage, it's not talking about somebody's going to discover that you have sinned. That's not the context. I know when we're growing up, that's the verse that scared me the most. My dad has eyes in the back of his head. My mom has three eyes in the back of her head. I don't have a chance of getting away with anything because my sin will find me out. And I'm not saying that that's not true. We know that to be true. But in the context of this passage, that's not what it's talking about. It's saying that be sure your sin will find you out. It means if you choose this direction, punishment will come. Your sin will catch up with you. That's the context. The context is you can choose to do this, tribe of Gilead. You can choose not to go over the promised land. But I'm telling you right now, if you make this choice, you will suffer the consequences. Sin has an everlasting effect. So the question this morning and what we want to get to this whole time, what do I do about this sin? What do I do about this problem? This problem is serious. This problem is not just a disease. It's not just a mistake. It's rebellion against God and everything God stands for. What do I do about this problem? 
Go with me to Colossians chapter number 2. Colossians chapter number 2. Don't you love it when preachers say, what do I do about it? And they show you what not to do. That's what I'm going to do. Before I show you what I think you should do, I'm going to show you what the world says you can do. I will say, first of all, that you have something to overcome. It's called your free will. And may I remind you, you have a degenerate will. Your will is wants to do everything within its power to destroy everything good in your life. And I am afraid that oftentimes in this world, I'm not afraid, you can see it. The world has taken self-will and raised it to the level of a God. That's what every one of these self-help meetings and organizations have in common. You can do it. I'm here to tell you when it comes to the sin problem, you cannot do it. How many of you guys would be honest with yourself and say, I am a greater Christian than the Apostle Paul? What did Paul say about his will? Romans chapter 7 and verse 18. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Listen to what he says. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. What is he saying? The will is there, but it's not enough. I have the willpower, but I fail. Colossians chapter number 2, verse number 20. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why? He says, look, if you're, if you're dead to Christ, he has a question for you. Why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with using. Listen to this. After the commandments and doctrines of men, verse 23 is what we want to look at, which... Things have indeed a show of wisdom in, here it is, will worship. He says these things that you can do these steps, and if you can do these steps, you can conquer. He says they have a showing of will worship. I'm afraid that even as Christians today, uh, we worship the will greater than we worship the Lord. And then we wonder why we constantly struggle. Your will is not strong enough. He goes on. In will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in honoring to the satisfying of the flesh. Verse number one of chapter number three. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are what? So first of all, you obviously, your will cannot be trusted to overcome the sin problem. Eve did not have the willpower to not eat the fruit. Gehazi did not have the willpower to say no to a few shekels and a couple changes of garments. David did not have the willpower to lust at Bathsheba and then say no. Judas did not have the willpower to say no to 30 pieces of silver. And because of each of those things, a drastic consequence followed. I am not going to give you an exhaustive list. I wish I could sit here and say, okay, repeat after me. One, two, three, this is going to solve your problem. I just got done telling you that doesn't work. But there are certain things, biblical principles, that if we infuse into our lives, we can deal with this sin problem. 
First, you have to recognize the problem as being real. If you haven't recognized that sin is a real problem to you and that it literally grieves the heart of God every single day, then I'm sorry, I don't know how better to describe sin. I'll tell you, the number one thing that grieved me this morning waking up is how can you portray sin in an ugly enough picture? How can you paint a picture bad enough? I mean, you have people that try to tell stories of hideous things that happen, and that's not what I'm interested in. I think the first thing you have is repentance. You see, repentance forces humility, and humility is the number one enemy of your flesh. And a person that doesn't repent never restrains their flesh. Never. Look at Matthew chapter number 4 and also in Luke chapter 24. Repentance was such an amazing thing that the very first message that Jesus Christ ever preached when he came onto this planet earth as a man, it was a message on repentance. The very last message Jesus Christ ever preached on this earth was a message of repentance. I would dare say that Jesus Christ thought it was important. Matthew chapter number 4, verse number 17, the Bible says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first time you hear the words Jesus Christ preached, the next thing you see is repent. Luke chapter number 24. Luke chapter 24, this is after his resurrection, the very last waning passages in the book of Luke as he's winding down. He says in verse number 46, and said, speaking of Jesus, said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And then he gives us the why. I love it when God gives us the why. Why did he do these things? And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Uh, may I say this morning that the very first step to the sin problem that plagues every one of our lives is repentance. And the problem is, is a lot of times we come to a great uh, stopping point in our lives and anybody that's ever uh, made a, a monstrous decision for Jesus Christ, we can always point to a specific time uh, where we genuinely repented uh, for the first time. It's called salvation. Uh, and I can remember on October the 20th, 1999, I truly repented of my sins in Jesus came in and he saved my soul and that my friend is where it starts and if there's never been a time where you have repented of your sins in a specific moment where you have taken your sins your hideous awful putrid pus soaring sins and laid them at the foot of the cross my friend today you have no solution for your sins uh, other than Jesus Christ and repentance in his name but how many of us can look to that day and how many of us that's the only day or one of the only days where we can put a finger on a genuine repentance of the awfulness of our sins. If I could paint a, a, a shallow picture in your mind, uh, imagine that sins are as if you were to dig a one-foot hole. And every day that goes by without any sort of repentance, you dig that one hole because of your sin, and repentance would be the picture of you filling that hole back in. I know it's a horrible illustration, but go with me for a second. If you have one foot hole, 
you can still get out of that hole without help. You can still step out of that hole without most people even noticing from a distance that you're even in the hole. But if you go day two and you have a two-foot hole, it's a little more difficult, but yet you can still step out of that hole on your own. But as the days go on, what about day 15, day 16? And you're in a 16-foot hole. And I'm afraid that oftentimes when we view our sin, uh, we're living in a hole that's 30 feet deep. And we come and we say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. And he pours a foot full worth of dirt in there and says, you're forgiven. And we say, but wait a minute. I'm still down here. Somebody asked me the other day. I'm sorry, I'm using such horrible examples. Somebody asked me the other day about a decision that the Dallas Cowboys organization was making. I simply said this. Well, you make 15 years of bad financial decisions, and then all of a sudden you make something that seems like a good financial decision, it doesn't really matter. Because if you've made 15 years of bad decisions, one or two or three or five, even in a full year, is really not going to help. And that's the way we are in our sin. We make continual decisions that are contrary to the word of God. We rebel against his wisdom and his authority and his, his truth and his justice. And we are living in a state of rebellion. And one day we get a message that somehow makes it through. And we say, okay, God, I'm sorry. And then we look around and say, why is my life such a mess? You know why? You're in a 35-foot hole. The only way to properly deal with sin is to keep short account of repentance. Because without a bruising of the flesh, without a knocking of the flesh in the eye every single day, that flesh just gets stronger and stronger. But it's not just repentance. It's last and certainly not least of all, it's a reviving of the spiritual man. You know, when somebody is studying the life of Christ, and this is the point I've been trying to get to this whole time, I'm going to give you this point, and I promise we'll be done. When studying the life of Christ, one is presented with a difficult question. On the outset, it's difficult. Really, it's not that difficult. But I've been asked it on many occasions. And the question is this. If Jesus Christ lived a sinless, perfect life for 32 years, of which we believe that he did. And the question is this. Could, do not answer this out loud, please. I don't want you to embarrass yourself. Could Jesus Christ have sinned? That's the question I get. Now, the answer seems obvious, but then the follow-up question always comes. If it were not possible for Jesus Christ to sin, could it honestly be said then that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin? How do you mold those two fundamental principles together? How is it that he could be tempted like us, but if he could not sin, if it was not a possibility, how is it truly a temptation? The question is really more difficult than the answer. How could Jesus Christ genuinely be tempted, but yet never sin, and in my estimation, it wasn't possible? It's found in a twofold answer, which is very simple. He was all man. Therefore, all man could be tempted like as we are. Then all God, yet without sin. Now, the reason that he could be tempted, fully tempted, but yet never submit to that temptation is because no matter the strength of the temptation, 
He had an unlimited amount of supply called God to say no. So no matter how much temptation, there was 100% God that says, if you do that, this, 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 this is going to happen. And this is what you're sinning against yourself and all this. So the reason he could be tempted, he was all man. The reason he could never resist, yield to that temptation, he's all God. Now I say that to say this, what does that mean to you and me? We have a sin problem. But yet when we get saved, what happens? I'm afraid we have bought into a lot of this worldly philosophy that salvation saves the old man. That is not what takes place. Not even in the least bit. Look in Ephesians chapter number 4, verse number 24. We're going to look just a couple of verses. I'll make my point. We'll be done. We want the scriptures to make the point, not me. Ephesians chapter number 4, verse number 24. The Bible says, and that you put on, here it is, the new man. Here we go. It describes the new man. We understand the new man, but may I bring forth a little bit about that new man, which after God is created, what? In righteousness and what? True holiness. So the new man that a person gets out of salvation, what is that man? He is what? Holy. He is perfect. He is righteous. You say, well, at salvation he is, but man, I'm a bad person. Well, let me show you something else. Go to 1 Peter chapter number 1. 1 Peter chapter number 1. When a person is born again, when a person accepts Jesus Christ, he gets a new man. It's not a reviving of the old man. The old man has nothing to do with it. The old man is sitting there, standing up and down, stomping up and down and screaming in your face today. No, that's what the old man is doing while you're kneeling there. The old man has nothing to do with salvation, but at salvation there's a complete brand new person that takes up residence within your body. First Peter chapter 1 verse 23, the Bible says, being born where it is, here it is, again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Two simple questions. Can an incorruptible seed produce something that is corruptible? No. Can a corruptible seed produce something that is incorruptible? No. On November the 30th, 1979, there was a person born into this body. What you see is not me. It is the shell of me. We would describe me as my personality, as that which exudes it. But this body houses me. That's the old man. On October the 20th, 1999, another person took up residence within this shell of a body. There are two distinct people that are at war within this body. And they are at war with each other. They don't ever get along. Yes, I am schizophrenia, asked my wife. If we go over just one page, couple pages, 2 Peter chapter 1, the Bible says, according as his divine power, verse number 3, 2 Peter chapter 1, hath given unto us all things. What has he given us? All things. Listen to the things he's given us. That pertain unto life and godliness 
Through the knowledge of him that hath called us such glory and mercy. Here we go, verse 4. Whereby are giving unto us the sitting great and promises that by these ye might be partakers of what? The what? Divine nature. You see, we have a sin problem. And we focus on that sin problem and we should assault that sin problem. We should look at it as a serious thing. But I'm here to tell you this morning, if there's been a specific time when you came to Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have the answer to combat the sin problem. Now, am I going to say that it will always win? I wish it will not. 1 John 3, 9 tells us, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Let me ask you this. Do you commit sin? I do. But yet are you born of God? Yes. So how do you make both of those sentences make sense? The very same reason that God could not sin, but yet he could be tempted. Because I have two completely different people, natures living inside of me. Therefore, I need to have a twofold attack upon the sin that's in my life. The first full attack is repentance to take that flesh and humiliate it and embarrass it and show it how awful it is and reprove it and rebuke it and, and, and do everything I can to make sure it is as small as possible. But then I have another side. I have a divine nature, that divine nature that never sins, that's perfectly holy, that we claim to be the presence of Jesus Christ himself that has taken up a boat inside of this life. And my secondary job is to build him up, to lift him up, to praise him to feed him on the word of God every day to talk to him in prayer every day not to read him my to-do list called a prayer list only but to say God I'm here I want to talk to you I want to have fellowship with you I have a problem here it's called a sin problem and I'm going to do my best to repent and stomp on that old nature but God I want I need you over here I got to have your help and God I need your help so I'm going to be in the word of God today I'm going to be praying today I'm going to be in church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night because I know I can't do this on my own and my will wants to do it as Paul did but it's just not enough go with me to one last passage Romans chapter number five pastors done such an amazing job in the last year preaching on this passage so I'm not going to re-explain it I'm only going to make the application that is the most amazing part of anything that I've said so far this is the one I've been waiting to get to since I got started Romans chapter number five if you read Romans chapter 1, it's talking about sin. You read Romans chapter 2, it's talking about sin. You read Romans chapter 3, it's talking about how awful you are. You read Romans chapter 4, it's talking about how Abraham, even in his best, he couldn't do any good. And then it's talking about Romans chapter 5, and you're saying, man, what, what is wrong with this? I can never do anything right. And then one of the most abused verses in today's society, we find in Romans chapter number 5, verse number 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. And here's the phrase that gets so abused. And here in just the context of what we've been saying, might we make the word of God beautiful here for just a moment. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through what? Through what? righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Today, the world's view of grace is an excuse and a license to do whatever I want. Might I refresh your mind on what everything we've talked about today in the context of this passage when you look, grace is not an excuse. Grace is the God-given power to get victory over sin. 
It's not an excuse that I can come and I can sin and then I can plead God's grace, have grace, have grace. No, that's not what it is. We get up this morning saying, God, I need your grace to make it through another day. God, I need your grace. I'm wicked. I'm wretched. I'm depraved. I have no hope within myself. My will is debauched. I don't have anything I can do. But God, if you'll give me some grace today, just maybe, just maybe, I can live for you today. That's the grace of God. That's the grace that God gives. That's the grace that God says, hey, you sin, I got enough strength for that one. Hey, you got a problem here? I got plenty. I got plenty. I can help you overcome that sin. He's not saying I can overlook that sin. He's saying if you'll give me credit, if you'll put me in on this thing, if you'll remember that I have a part inside of you too, I'll help you. That's the grace of God that I need uh, not an excuse to do whatever I want, not an excuse to say sin's really not that important, but say, God you would give me a little grace today I could deal with that person that I'm really getting angry with God if you give me a little grace today I could love my wife more God if you'd give me a little grace today I'll keep my eyes where they should be God if you'll give me a little grace today I'll have the strength and the boldness to witness to every person that I meet God if you'll give me grace today I won't be worried about my finances I'll trust you and your providence for my life That's the grace of God that we need in our lives. Not as an excuse when we've already sinned, but as a precursor saying, God, I'm here this morning. Will you feed me from your word? If you'll give me something from your word and give me a little grace today, I'll strive to be better today than I was the day before. And maybe there's somebody here this morning. You have a sin problem and you have no idea what to do about it. You don't have the grace of God because Jesus Christ is not taking up a boat in your life. And the only chance you have, the only hope you have today is accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and getting Him in on the fight with you. Your will is not strong enough. You don't have the willpower. You cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You need God's grace And it comes in the way of salvation. If there's never been a specific day in your life where you've asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart, you have a sin problem. That sin problem is enslaving. It is addicting. And it will forever cast you into a place called the lake of fire without God's given grace through Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the preciousness of God's word. Lord, thank you so much for salvation. Thank you for Jesus Christ. 